Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. My father had a massive heart attack. In less than six months, my mother was diagnosed with two forms of dementia. So I did not have a lot of time to prepare. I didn't see my mom start to dwindle. She wasn't even getting Social Security, for goodness sake. So for those people outside of the United States, she was less than 65. She was still working and had a very vibrant practice. She was a CPA. She did a lot of really fancy technical stuff in a courtroom. So to think that her brain was failing her was like, ah, no, I don't believe it. (laughs) So I didn't believe it. So I think that was a part of it. It was like, well, it can't be her brain. So a part for a while, I thought the doctors were wrong. I kept grabbing my mama in a suitcase and taking her to various specialists like, ah, listen, we need just one more test. Something's wrong with her, but it can't be her brain. This lady's brilliant. Once I chose to believe that dementia was happening in her body, then I felt like it was too heavy. Like the subject matter was too heavy to bring up in casual conversations with strangers who say, what do you do? But eventually I said, I'm an advocate. I'm originally from Montgomery, Alabama. I was, you know, the civil rights struggle and the rights for equity of all human beings matters a lot to me. And I thought, okay, Jay, sweetheart, maybe this is a part of your story. And if not you, then who? If not now, then when? So how can you bring it up in a way that's not uncomfortable if you happen to be at a museum (laughs) and everybody's in formal wear tuxedos and the ladies are in their best Dior? What can you say that won't make everybody leave (laughs) and stop talking to you? And so I started to mention it in a way that was a little more palatable. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the podcast. So this week on the podcast, I'm speaking with someone who has been a personal friend and inspiration of mine. We're actually from the same hometown, which is Montgomery, Alabama. We attended the same college, which is Howard University in Washington, D.C., And our work has crossed paths several times as adults. Her name is Janae Smith, also known by her stand-up comedy name, which is Jay Smiles. So Jay is a former engineer, product designer, slash attorney turned stand-up comedian. And she also happens to own one of the largest private authenticated collection of game-worn sports memorabilia, which she has a partnership with in the Smithsonian Museum, where if you've been to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., you may have seen one of Jesse Owens's pairs of shoes that he wore during the Berlin Olympics when he broke all of those records, or Babe Ruth's jerseys that he wore during one of his championships. Well, Jay originally inherited that massive collection from her father, 
who was also a prominent attorney in the South, after he tragically passed away from a heart attack. Then, as if that wasn't bad enough, six months later, Jay's mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And at the time, Jay was single, she was childless, she was doing very well professionally, she was living a meticulously crafted international existence, those are her words, not mine, but she chose to stop everything that she was doing and became a full-time caregiver for her mother. Now, obviously, caregiving puts a lot of stress onto even the most calm, meditated people. And while dealing with that stress of caregiving, Jay decided to find an outlet for all of the stress by taking a comedy workshop. And she happened to fall in love with comedy. And she began appearing on open mics in the evenings. And while she dabbled in different kinds of comedy, she ultimately found her groove as a conscious comic because she had been meditating and her experiences as a caregiver opened her up spiritually as well. And this led to Jay starting a podcast called Parenting Up Caregiving Adventures, where she tells humorous stories about caregiving and she interviews other caregivers to share their experiences in an effort to help give caregivers everywhere a little laugh a little lightness in their day, and a lot of inspiration to keep going. In other words, she turned one of her biggest life challenges into her purpose and her passion. And in our conversation, she tells the whole story of how it all came to be and why she had the idea to become a caregiver. And what about caregiving did she not anticipate? And what are some of the things that she did anticipate? And what can you and I do now to prepare ourselves in case one of our parents or one of our friends or relatives ends up being diagnosed with a degenerative mental disease. I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Miss Jay Smiles. Jay Smiles, it is an honor. It's a pleasure to have you on my podcast we're friends, obviously, and we've worked together in different capacities. And yet, I didn't know the extent of your story. I had never really listened to your podcast like I did for researching this episode. And I'm super inspired to talk about your story and to use that to inspire other people who may be going through some similar experiences as you as a caretaker. Because I feel like as you talk about in your podcast, which is all about caretaking, it's just something that we don't talk about a lot. And my mom was a caretaker for her dad. And I can't remember really mentioning that to anybody when my granddad was living in our house and we were kind of taking care of him. And and so you've been down this road for 10 years now and, and you've collected a bunch of interesting stories and experiences. And so, yeah. I'm excited to get into that. So anyway, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Light. It has been much of a journey. And to be quite honest, it was maybe a good three or four years of my life into full-time caregiving before I was publicly talking about it. I literally lived it every moment. I live it less now. I'm actually balancing in a more healthy manner, other aspects of life than I did when it first started. But I was under the cloak of privacy and I didn't say anything. So I understand this 
unspoken veil of secrecy or privacy or I'm not sure why we do it, but it is definitely much more prevalent in North America than in other countries Mm -hmm. where we don't speak of the dementia aspect when we're caring for an elderly family member. Well, in my house, there were four boys, my mom and my dad. So my mom could always say, hey, Chipper, they called me. That's my nickname. Chipper, go downstairs and get your granddad some water. And then Dusty, go downstairs and sit with your granddad while he's watching television. And Trey, go over and help your granddad do this. So there were all these assistants and interns who could do things on behalf of my mom. Your case is is very different. It's just you and her. So you are, or at least you were in the very beginning, full-time caregiver while trying to figure that out. And you have an episode that's all about how when you meet people and within the first couple of minutes, inevitably the question comes up, what do you do? You never really mentioned that you were a caregiver, even though being a caregiver very much dictated your schedule in the same way that working as an attorney or working as an engineer would dictate your schedule. And then you kind of evolved into a way of addressing it or bringing it up but only if the person really wanted to hear that. And I wanted you to start this conversation off by talking about that way that you would approach it or you learned how to approach it so that you didn't have to be embarrassed or ashamed or anything like that about talking about it. But you also didn't want to just blurt it out and have somebody look like a deer in the headlights. Correct. It was a really unique juxtaposition. I have three academic degrees. So typically... When you are in a scenario and a person says, what do you do? They're not asking around about your non-income earning pursuits. You learn that after you're about 22 years old, they are not asking about your passions and your hobbies. They really want to know, hey, how are you making those coins? Even if you're not making the coins yet, is it an app? Are you trying to become the world's next Picasso that we don't know about? You got something past cubism. Are you going to get back to realism? What are you doing? That's going to make the world look at you while you're earning money or maybe curing cancer, something like that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it didn't even come to me like as something to describe. So it was really when I started trying to help newer caregivers with their struggle that I realized how bad I sucked at talking about my life as a caregiver. And I was like, why? And then I started talking about it with my therapist and friends and other caregivers. Like, why do we not talk about this stuff? Are we embarrassed? So it was that level of introspection and reflection to try to figure out why. But it was me becoming an advocate and an advisor of younger, what I call newbie caregivers on my podcast that even led me down that track. Initially, like you spoke of in my podcast, my entree into this world of caregiving was so catastrophic and mind-blowing and gut-wrenching and my whole soul turned inside and out and zapped away for any of your listeners who eventually listen to my podcast will learn My father had a massive heart attack. In less than six months, my mother was diagnosed with two forms of dementia. So I did not have a lot of time to prepare. I didn't see my mom start to dwindle. 
She wasn't even getting Social Security, for goodness sake. So for those people outside the United States, she was less than 65. She was still working and had a very vibrant practice. She was a CPA. She did a lot of really fancy technical stuff in a courtroom. So to think that her brain was failing her was like, ah, no, I don't believe it. (laughs) So I didn't believe it. So I think that was a part of it. It was like, well, it can't be her brain. So a part for a while, I thought the doctors were wrong. I kept grabbing my mama in a suitcase and taking her to various specialists like, ah, listen, we need just one more test. Something's wrong with her, but it can't be a brain. This lady's brilliant. And when you're at a networking event or a party or somebody's housewarming, do you really want to lead with, well, I'm taking care of my mom because her brain is dying as we speak. As a matter of fact, the fact that I'm here with you rather than being here at home with her, I feel kind of guilty. Who the hell wants to hear that? I didn't even know how to talk about it without sounding like World War VII is happening in my home. So that was the tricky part. Once I chose to believe that dementia was happening in her body, then I felt like it was too heavy. Like the subject matter was too heavy to bring up in casual conversations with strangers who say, what do you do? But eventually I said, I'm an advocate. I'm originally from Montgomery, Alabama. I was you know, the civil rights struggle and the rights or equity of all human beings matters a lot to me. And I thought, okay, Jay, sweetheart, maybe this is a part of your story. And if not you, then who? If not now, then when? So how can you bring it up in a way that's not uncomfortable if you happen to be at a museum (laughs) and everybody's in formal wear tuxedos and The ladies are in their best Dior. What can you say that won't make everybody leave (laughs) and stop talking to you? And so I started to mention it in a way that was a little more palatable. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. 
you would ask people, what do you mean by that question? <laughs> what do I do? That's right? true. That's very true. That's ultimately what I landed on after I had a few really bad snafus when I went in mm-hmm. too heavy. You know, when you're trying to figure something big out in life, for me, when I'm trying to figure something big out in life, I'm a bit of an extremist. I go way left, way right, way high, way low, and, and then I, I succeed and or fail, and I find my own North Star Center, whatever you want to call it. And I went in too hard and too fast telling some people, yeah, my dad just dropped dead on the sofa and then and my mom lost her mind. Man, it was a <laughs> shit show. And they're like, oh, yes, I'm about to go get some cocktail shrimp. Nice meeting you. I was like, oh, <laughs> So after a few of those, that's when I came to the, okay, Jay, what's a better question? What do you mean by that? What do you mean when you ask me that question? Are you saying, what do I do to earn a living? Or what do I really do with my time? What are my passion projects? What drives me? And depending on how they answer that question, I would then lead or lean into my caregiving advocacy. And I would use the fact that I'm an advocate to really get their ear because that's a little softer for individuals. And I wouldn't go into the hardship of caregiving, but I would say, okay, hey, if they said, oh, well, tell me about both. So I would speed through the corporate part in my best 30 seconds. Okay, well, a mechanical engineer, worked at Ford, product design masters, Howard Stanford, worked at Gillette, engine lawyer, the Cochrane firm. And by this time, they're like, what? Huh? What do you mean? You did all that? I was like, yeah. But what you need to understand is I actually enjoyed all of them. I enjoyed all of those entities. But I had a burning desire to continue doing more. I became an entrepreneur. And right in there, my parents' health tanked. My father passed. My mom got ill. But my advocacy and my training in those three previous careers has helped me in caregiving. And it allows me to really try to say, hey, we got to let people know more about caregiving and talk more about it in a way that they're not so afraid. And one thing that I found that really worked well is I'll say, hey, you remember when everybody would be afraid of cancer patients because we didn't know what to do. They didn't have any hair on their whole face, no facial hair. We treated them like an alien and you didn't want to touch them. You didn't want to look at them. You just got at the bus stop. You went and stood at the other side. But now you continue to talk to them as if nothing has changed about their appearance. And it's because radiation and chemo have been normalized. And then I say, that's what I want to do for caregiving. That's what I want to do for Alzheimer's. I want people to understand the disease enough that until we beat this thing, at least if you see a person start taking off their pants in the middle of Cheesecake Factory, you don't want to put the whole family out and decide that everybody's a wacko and needs to go to jail. You're like, oh, you know what? That's an elderly person standing with an otherwise sane looking 25-year-old Maybe it's a dementia-related disease. And just chill. Keep eating your damn omelet. Drink your mimosa and don't get in it. And I noticed that taking it kind of from a point of advocacy and saying, I want to inform the general public of what Alzheimer's can look like and how the people who are suffering with it aren't aliens and they still can feel a lot. And they're very caring. And 
They're not trying to piss you off. That's another thing that <laughs> the general public believes that what well, mama just asked me for a steak sandwich. I get the steak sandwich. I bring it to her and she's like, get this damn steak sandwich out of my face. And then they're like, well, how in the hell could she forget that fast? It's a disease. She's just trying to piss me off, wasting my time and wasting my good sirloin. Really? Come on. And so those types of conversations seem to help me because I didn't make it about my mother and my pain. I made it about the mm. larger problem of non-caregivers not understanding the disease. Oh, oh yeah. And the fact that Alzheimer's is the most expensive disease in America. Nobody knows that. Everybody likes to talk dollars and cents. It's the most expensive disease. It costs more than diabetes, all the cancers and AIDS, yo. So when you say she had two forms of dementia, what are those two forms? And is dementia synonymous with Alzheimer's or why do we call it Alzheimer's versus dementia sometimes? Okay. So I'll start with the bottom, with the last question and work back in. Dementia is an umbrella category for any disease that affects your neurological system in a way that causes cognitive decline. Dementia itself is not a disease. It just means that you have something in your body that is affecting your neurological system with the component of cognitive decline. And it's believed that you are going to have a lessened lifespan because of it. Down syndrome is a dementia. Alzheimer's is the most popular dementia. It is the most prevalent dementia, but it's not the only one. You have Down syndrome, you have Alzheimer's, you have Lewy body dementia, Parkinson. So Alzheimer's and then Parkinson's are the two most commonly diagnosed. You also have NPH, which is the second one that my mother has. So my mother has Alzheimer's and she also has NPH, which is normal pressure hydrocephalus. I'm saying that right. I know the acronym is right. Don't get, don't, don't, don't hear me up on the actual pronunciation. But the second form of dementia that she has, NPH, means that her body is not regulating the fluid around her brain properly on its own anymore. And not politically correct. However, very funny in stand-up comedy in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When you would hear people make a joke and say, look at that big ass waterhead boy. He probably had MPH. <laughs> Not funny when you know about it. I'm just remembering some of the jokes with some of the stand-up comedians that I enjoyed as a kid. So you can die if MPH is not regulated quickly and regulated well. So my mother had to have brain surgery prior to her Alzheimer's being treated. So that happened first. They said, well, Jay, if we don't take care of this NPH, sweetheart, Alzheimer's won't even get a chance to kill your mama. I was like, well, you know, keep it real, doc. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> All right. Does anybody want to? Damn, where's your bedside manner? Is there a bar in this surgical center? 
That's what a- were some of the signs, the initial signs that something was was off? Well, because my father died so suddenly and we were both in a tremendous amount of shock and grief, I will admit that a bunch of signs not only may have I might have missed, it looked like she lost her boo. This is a lady grieving her man. They'd been together. And not only that, my parents really understood one another. It was a second marriage for each of them. And they just not saying that they didn't disagree. They did. But they really understood each other's idiosyncrasies and they made a nice unit. And she was the one who found him deceased in some very, very quick terms. So I just put everything under, oh, she's just, I guess this is what widow looks like. I don't know. I had never been that close to one. And I was also hurting. So I'm like a little bit like, hey, chick, you know, take care of yourself. I'm trying to get my stuff together. So the thing that made me say this is not typical grieving in any way. She was in the kitchen making a sandwich. You know, there was still a lot to be done with my father's estate. My father was a pretty big fish in the legal community nationally. And he had quite a few business interests outside of his law career. So there was a lot to manage. His law practice was still open. I'm a lawyer. I'm a barred attorney. So I swooped in and I'm trying to help manage that. Mom says, hey, Jay, I'm going to the kitchen to make a sandwich. Like, great. I go in the kitchen. She's making a sandwich, watching television. I look down. And there's a puddle of something that looks slightly yellow around her sneaker. I can still see it. And I said, Mom, what are you doing? She said, I told you I'm making a sandwich. Do you want a sandwich? And I was like, what else are you doing? She said, nothing, girl. Do you want a sandwich? And I was like, okay, there's urine running down her leg and puddling in her shoe. And she doesn't know it. And she's awake and making a sandwich. So she is functioning. She didn't cut herself. There's no lettuce, tomato. She's cutting the mayo, making it. And the sandwich looked proper. Like she didn't, wasn't making a sandwich out of magazines, right? It was bread, turkey, cheese. And I thought this, okay, all right, full stop. This is now a problem. That was the thing that made me say, F what you heard, Houston, Pluto, everybody. I got to do something. So what did you do? I went a little bit crazy. In my own way. Mm-hmm. I didn't point it out to her. I was so afraid of what was happening. Again, I didn't want it to be true. And I just kind of wiped it up. She was like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I think it's a bug. I called her primary care physician. And that started a series of actions. Again, we were in Montgomery, Alabama at the time. That's where my parents lived primarily. And love my hometown, but the medical offerings, it's not a thriving metropolis. So we ended up in Birmingham (laughs) trying to get to a neurologist that specialized in some pretty wacky, unique things. The issue became the weight. Everything was like three weeks to four weeks for someone of proper talent and training to see my mom. So I had to wait. The first thing they said was, okay, we don't have a neurologist that we believe will be good for your mom in Montgomery. 
that hurt my heart. I was like, well, what should we do? And so they mentioned a neuropsychologist. They said, because your mom was so high functioning and she's achieved so much in her life, it's hard to believe that she could have a neurodegenerative disease like overnight. And I was like, who the hell are you telling? So they wanted to do a neuropsych <laughs> evaluation. And this thing is like half a day. Just imagine MCAT, LSAT, all the SATs you could think of all at one time. She has to like draw pictures and do a scantron this and written exam and a verbal exam. And I couldn't be in there with her. That was a three week wait. And every two or three days I'm seeing my mother decline. I'm like, okay, mom, you know, go brush your teeth. Let's get dressed. We got to go to your office because I'm not telling her staff about these things because I don't know what's happening. She still has a staff and clients. My father still has a staff and clients. And I don't know what's happening. So I'm trying to manage all of these things. And they're saying three weeks, but every two or three days, I'm noticing something else where I'm like, the curl ain't curling, the click ain't clicking, this math ain't mathing. Why is my mama still standing in front of the mirror brushing her teeth? It's been 12 minutes. I think the toothpaste is still on the toothbrush and the water's running. Then what is she doing? It's almost like her download didn't download. Like, and I'm coming. I'm like, girl, you're supposed to be dressed. You got your slip on. So I'm fussing with her. Looking back on it now, I'm irritated and I'm agitated because I'm like, what are you doing? You're wasting time. And she's like, I'm getting ready. But she's fussing back. She's not saying, I don't know what the hell to do with this toothbrush and toothpaste. But we go through these kinds of things waiting. So the first thing is the neuropsych evaluation. And that comes back and she says, I'm no neurologist. No shit. Okay. But I believe your mother has a neurodegenerative brain disease. I was like, and so what does that mean? I think she's, well, not like in a week, but sooner than she should. Well, I don't need you to tell me if you can't really like say it in ink. Like if you can't write it in red and circle it, and put your initials on it. Like, don't tell me something to be worried about. Like, what's the point is that? Like, like, and then she wants to tell me how she wants to recommend my mother for a neurologist in Birmingham. Well, when can I see him? Well, I'm going to get him right in because I was a resident under him and all of this. And I'm one of his favorite patients. Four weeks. Dude, that's not how we favorite at Howard. You don't know how to favorite. Favorite? Four weeks? Get on my face anyway, but that's all I had. I called other people and it seemed like in Alabama, he was that dude. Like you really want his assessment, his diagnosis. So I got to wait. But over this next four weeks, my mom starts having hallucinations. She's seeing people and talking to people that I've never met. I would have been a little prepared if like she was talking to my father or her parents because that's somewhat reasonable. She's talking about selling property in Dubai. To Jewish people, I'm like, I don't know these people. We don't have property in Dubai, do we? Because if so, let's go there. Forget all of this. I could get less. A month passes. I mean, literally, I'm holding her together. I'm holding myself together, like, you know, band-aids and bubble gum. It's a mess because there are things that are happening every two or three days. And steady, I got to get her to work enough for it to look like the firm should stay open. But I have put her managing partner and the other CPAs over her cases and projects. So she's not having to go to court anymore, but they're still like, well, where's your mom? I'm like, Hey, she said, my dad's dead. They go, okay. 
We get to him. He decides your mother definitely has a degenerative brain disease. I believe it's Alzheimer's, but I need an MRI to be sure. Give this paperwork. We'll write down. They'll get you in right away. Because I'm me. Like, basically, you know, I'm Oprah. You know, I'm Oprah. I'm Biden. I'm whatever. I go down. They say six weeks or three weeks. It was something with weeks. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Old dude upstairs just said he's the guy and this is important and my mom was falling apart. It's, I've already got four weeks, three weeks, no more weeks, no more weeks. I'm not going back to Montgomery. I'm not waiting weeks. Well, man, that's the best we can do. We only have, but like, I don't know, two MRI machines. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So my mom is sitting over there. She sees my distress. I'm crying, not with mouth, but with the, the lip trimmer. And I'm crying because I'm thinking I'm fighting with all I have for my mom's life. My father died, you know, less than six months ago and nobody's helping me. I didn't have any family members helping me fight. And I felt that no one in the medical community is helping me fight. I had the best insurance that America offered, whatever that means. I'm not saying it's the best in the world, but I had the best that American money could buy. Let me say that. And it wasn't working. And it was devastating. And you're telling me my mother and I'm seeing her decline very rapidly. And so my fear is I'm about to potentially lose my mother and my dad in less than a year. I'm ringing the bell and I'm jumping off the cliff and I'm like, hey, hey, help, help, help. And no one is feeling this urgency like I am. So I pat my face with a tissue or something from the desk and I go back over and my mom is like, baby, what's wrong? And I was like. I think I'm having an allergic reaction. Like I totally lied about something. And I get in the car and we drive back to Montgomery. That's about an hour, hour and a half. I'm driving slowly, trying to pull together. What am I going to do? Because my soul tells me you cannot wait just to get, because now I see the pattern or the pattern as a comedian joke. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, okay, because all that's going to happen is I'm going to get this MRI. Even if you confirm that she has Alzheimer's or some other degenerative disease, you're then going to put me another holding pattern on what you're going to do with it. Nobody's ready to move. I need to move on something. So I stop. I put into work. I jump outside of the system and I start calling any and everybody I know that I've ever met. And I throw in all the Hail Marys, all the passes, all the alley oops. I call in all my favors for every fancy hospital in the United States, you know, Mayo Clinic, Cedars-Sinai. And I said, I have a loved one who is dying before me and I got to get a workup right now. I think they have Alzheimer's or something, but it's going down really fast. And I got a call back and I was in Cedars-Sinai in less than a week. And they're the ones who did a 48-hour workup on my mom and then told me in less than 18 hours, she has two forms of dementia. And this is the treatment plan that we suggest. Which, by the way, is Friday afternoon and we think she should have brain surgery. Huh? When? How's Monday? Okay, maybe Tuesday. What year? Ain't nobody playing with y'all. I brought three days of clothes. My car is still parked at the airport. Don't nobody even know I'm in L.A. Brain surgery? You all are supposed to do a workup? <laughs> I'm sorry, can we start over? You're supposed to do a workup, a full body workup on her. And then you're going to give me a system of 
treatment options that I'm going to take back to the East Coast. We're probably going to have to go to Atlanta and get this treatment done. That's all you're supposed to do. I was giving my little MRIs and CT scans and PET scans and stuff. I'm going to go back with my little files on my little jump drive. I'm going to take some cod liver oil, you know, some beetroot juice or something like that. And then we're going home. There's no emergency surgery on Monday. What would the surgery have entailed? What do they want to do? That's when they told me about the NPH. And they mm-hmm. said the fluid on her brain was pressing and imminent. And that was putting her life in immediate jeopardy. And the damage that it caused is not reversible. So she could end up not being able to walk or talk in a matter of days if we didn't act. That's a big decision they put on you. That is correct. Because at that point, your mother, does she need a sign off to do something like that? Because she's not functioning cognitively or how does that work? Or did she make the final call on that? Well, she was functioning like she was still working. We were having these blips that I described to you, but she was still going to her office. She was no longer going Mm -hmm. to court. She had her staff members going to court on her behalf, but she was still driving a car. She was still managing her affairs financially. I was noticing these things around the house and I was like, listen, to outside people, my mother still looked okay, but I was saying, hey, I'm her daughter and this isn't right. She's not okay. But she would still eventually brush her teeth, right? Everything was just much slower than it should have been. She would eventually brush her teeth, eventually get dressed, eventually get in the car, eventually get to work and talk to her staff and hold whatever the meeting is. They ultimately told me after she was diagnosed, yeah, we did notice that your mom, her conversations in the staff meeting had started to be a little more circular than we were accustomed to having with her. But nothing for other people was a flashing red stop sign. But, you know, she's my mom. I'm like, hell no. Like, this is a problem right now. And if anything else happens, I'm not going to be able to get back from this. Um, So you, you did the surgery? I absolutely did the surgery. I'll never be able to thank the staff, the neurological brain department at Cedar sinai And ironically, Dr. Keith Black, you know, he's world-renowned and just he's that dude, neurosurgeon, and he's been running things, and he's now over the Johnny L. Cochran Brain Cancer Research Center. And he has ties to Montgomery, Alabama, his aunt. And uncle lived there. And so you just never know how little old Montgomery, Alabama is going to help you out in the pit. <laughs> but what happened was what really hurt. I remember the pain was that on that Friday afternoon, they asked me, they could see the pure fear in my face because I was my mom and I were out there alone. And they said, do you have anybody to call and to ask? And I didn't. For the first time in my life, I didn't have anyone to run a significant life decision by. Because Mm -hmm. what had happened over the last few months let me know that I didn't have any family members at that time that would really support what my mom and I happened to be going through. And I couldn't believe that all of my family ties were in such a fragile state. And then obviously dad was deceased and mom is the one who was handling having the problem. And because of her professional cases that were on the line. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, I can't. I said, no, it's me. 
And they said, well, these are the consequences of not doing. I said, well, can I fly back to East Coast and potentially have this surgery done? And they said, yeah, but we don't know if she could make the trip. Now, we flew out there like just fine. My mother had her own driver's license, her own pocketbook. Like she packed her own clothes. Like she walked through TSA. She's not in a wheelchair. She did her own little curls that morning, put a little red lipstick on. And I'm like, what do you mean we can't make it back? The speed with which this unraveled, amazing. And I said, well, I'm going to see. But the universe showed me. Charm led me. That was Friday night, Saturday morning to Sunday morning. My mother had an event to occur when she lost full control of her bowels, her bladder, and her legs overnight. I paged the neurologist and I said, as soon as I can get this together enough to get her cleaned up, we're on our way to the ER, sir. You can do the surgery in the morning. I don't even want to keep her in the hotel tonight to see you on Monday morning. We're checking in today, Sunday, just in case something super weird happens. I want her hooked up to a machine because I woke up to her in full feces and urine, but she was talking to me and she knew it had happened and she couldn't stop it and she couldn't. And I was Mm -hmm. like, this is real and it's happening just as quickly as they say. Thank God I'm out here with Physicians who are ready to move quickly. Let's go. We were out there for a couple of months. I went to Target in Hollywood, bought an ass load of clothes. <laughs> so, you mentioned in one of your other podcast episodes, there's no manual for people who are having this experience in your shoes, people who are in your shoes, who are caregiving someone who just realized that they're not or thinks they're not living in their own home when they actually are. And so from your perspective, how are you making sense of everything? Were you on Google all the time? Did you find some sort of book or how did you learn how to do whatever you started doing initially? It was never Google. I can say that from the beginning. It was never Google. It was, I asked a lot of the hospital staff because my beginning, my launch pad of caregiving was Cedar sinai ICU, and Rehabilitation Center. So I was watching them and what they were doing for my mom because my mom went from fully communicating with me and talking to I'm watching this phenomenal team of nurses and rehab specialists teach her how to walk again, hold a fork again. And so I'm like, okay, all right, this is real. It was almost as if she had had a stroke. She did not have a stroke, but that's what I imagine rehab after a stroke may look like from what I've heard. And I asked them an insane amount of questions. What are you doing? How are you doing that? Okay, why are you using that device? Like, why are you using that walker on my mom? Yet Mr. Jackson over here has this other walker. So my intense love for my mom, and I also believe my natural curiosity as an engineer, inventor, product designer, every day I was asking questions. And I also went to her sessions. I didn't go to every single session, but I needed some time to sleep or take a shower. But every week I went to at least a handful of the speech or the occupational therapy or what have you. And I would ask them, 
what equipment are you using? Why are you using it? When I get home, what should I do? Because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I can't keep a plant alive. And they will all laugh. I'm like, you're laughing, but I'm serious. I live on the road. I have a toiletry bag and an Amex that says I can go wherever I want to. I don't know nothing about keeping nobody. I got me. Like, what do you and I took a lot of notes. And that was the beginning of what types of equipment and what style of engaging my mom I would use. When it was time to leave rehab, they said, okay, all right, you got this brand new 60-something-year-old, 200-pound baby. Go home, have a happy life. And I was like, who go where? <laughs> None of y'all coming home with me? What am I supposed to do with her? I don't know how to do this. They're telling me about bed transfers and security belts. I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. What are you talking about? You seriously are sending me home? Like, y'all are not scheduling nobody to come to the house to do this for at least a month or two till I get my footing? They're like, no, this is it. Freaked me out. Then I have to be grateful to my circle of friends. They heard the panic in my voice. I don't know who the hell they called light. I don't know if they Googled or called nurses that they know. They said, okay, Jay, there are top-notch home care agencies for people like you. We're going to call some of them, find out who's the best in Metro Atlanta, and interview you some caregivers. And that's how it started. And I called several agencies, and it was literally like online speed dating. Hey, this just happened to my mom. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I can't do anything by myself. Can you send somebody to the house? Okay, great. Okay, can you come to the house first, though? Don't send a caregiver because I don't even know what I need. That's the first thing that is so disheartening about this process is agencies, doctors, or what have you, they ask the family member, okay, so what do you need? We don't know. How many hours do you need? What days, what time you want them to arrive, and what do you want them to do? What do you want them to cook and clean or do laundry? Do they need to give a shower? Do they need to brush their teeth? Do they need to do medicine? You're like, I don't know. I don't even know what my mama can't do. How the hell do I know? Do you want a man or a woman? Do you want an older person, a younger person? Do they need to have a car? Can they use your car? What I really want is my regular mama back. Can I check that box? <laughs> is that an option? So. You were single, childless, you had done some engineering, some product design, now you're a lawyer. Two questions. What were your career aspirations just before that happened, just before that shift took place? And then walk us through how you got into comedy. How did comedy enter into the spectrum of options as a career? Career aspirations just before that took place. Man. Where'd you see your life going? Prior to your dad having the heart attack. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm having Luke wipe the window. Remember all of that. Okay. So prior to my dad passing, I had the three academic degrees and the plan, it was well underway. And the ultimate goal was to have a tricontinental life between Europe and Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, mostly Ghana, Kenya. South Africa, Namibia. Those were the four countries that I had contacts in. Very specific, definite contacts around legal missionary work to assist current lawyers into 
helping raise equity for women and girls. Mm-hmm. And I'd already started doing that. In Italy, I would engage and work on product design pursuits. My passions for product design and law didn't go anywhere. They were things that in my brain, I would have connections with like a stronghold in Milan and then a stronghold in those areas that I mentioned in Africa. Then I would come back to the United States, making connections as necessary to bring those products and services to the U.S. for whatever might be need, whether I need it at that time, if I, maybe I'm bringing the products and services back for funding or for sales or whatever. So I'm spending like half a year to 18 months somewhere, half a year to 18 months somewhere, and I'm coming back and I'm circling. I'm more of a enthusiast, consultant, engager. And I'm just going to keep repeating that. Just rinse, repeat. Also, my father started collecting Game Worn Sports memorabilia back in the 1980s. And somewhere around the early 2000s, he had become the largest private collector of game-worn Western-based sports. I'm, I don't know if somebody has more cricket items or squash. I'm not getting into that. But if you're saying baseball, football, basketball, across the Western-based sports, nobody had more than my father had acquired. And it was a source of pride and a great deal of family input. So my goal was to then, as I made more connections in Europe and Africa, to eventually have that prime pieces of it circling the globe with virtual and or live tours to really impact people with the stories. Cause like I have Jesse Owens track cleats for 1936 Olympics when he got the four gold medals in front of Hitler. I have an original pair of gloves from Jack Johnson. I also have one of four known Babe Ruth jerseys when he was with the New York Yankees. So I have male and female, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, game-worn stuff. Italian, I have a Mario Andretti, full racing suit. And that's what I was setting out to do. I was like, this is it. I want to get better and better and make more connections. My thing has always been around, I'm a global citizen, and how can I make the world a better place I want to leave more than I take out of it. That was the plan. And it was coming together. <laughs> then dad dies. What we've just been discussing, it happens. About three years into caregiving, for those three years, I was only caregiving. I was managing my mother's CPA firm, managing my father's law firm. The best way to say it is I'd opened the first African-American equity-owned business on the strip in Las Vegas, and it was a sports memorabilia gaming experience. So I had those things going on while I was trying to also handle my father's estate and learn how to be a caregiver. Tremendous amount of stress. And people suing me. Hey, guys, I didn't know trying to wife me, trying to come up into what they thought might be. Come up. And I was like, hey, what are you talking about? What? No, get out of here. Silly guy. Should have got on that train earlier. You can't come in here talking about, hey, I know you. That's stupid. Then nobody teach you that you got to act like you don't know me. I was like, you don't even have a good, you don't even have, get out of here. 
three or so years into that, I'd gained about 50 pounds. My cholesterol, my blood pressure, everything was going in the wrong direction. I walked into a wall, not meaning to. Thought I was having a heart attack or a stroke. Turns out it was a severely inflamed pinched nerve. That was my wake-up call. Mm. You got to do something differently. I started looking for a hobby. Like I need a hobby that takes me out of all of this. Somewhere where I'm not Janae Smith. Because anywhere I walked in that time as Janae Smith, people knew what had happened. My, my dad was a Google alert before I knew that dude was dead. He was kind of a big fish in his area, so it was too much. And I was like, I need to go somewhere where nobody knows me, nobody wants anything. I need a new hobby because I got to let life off. And that's where comedy came in. I did not know I would fall in love with this heifer. <laughs> comedy caught me by the heart and pulled it up out of my throat. And it was, she was like, ah, Jay, I've been waiting on you. And I was like, well, why you ain't say nothing? Been over here doing all this other stuff. Then family and friends were like, you've been funny. I don't know what you took so long. I was like, really? Why did nobody say? So I basically was on kind of like a, a janky version of Groupon. Like it really wasn't Groupon, but it was kind of Groupon-y. Just kind of looking like it's going to be glass blowing or beer making. I just need something that's fun. I want to meet some new people. It's going to walk in and say, hey, I'm Jay. How you doing? Yeah, let's learn how to crochet. Two hours a day on a Saturday for six weeks. Mm -hmm. Comedy popped up. I fell in love with it. I knew it by like the second class because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was getting into writing the jokes. I was sweating like I was out somewhere running a marathon. I'm at my desk writing a stupid joke. I look down and I have like wet ring under my armpits and sweat running down my back. And I was like, damn it. Because <sighs> I knew what that meant. Right. I lived enough life to know I was like, I got, got, damn it. I got, got, I got, got, but I don't even have time to like nothing. Oh, man. I don't have time. This was not. <laughs> anyway, it happened. But for the first couple of years of comedy, I didn't talk about being a caregiver to circle back to that point. I didn't bring it up. I didn't talk about being mm -hmm. Jay. I didn't talk anything about caregiver, my dad, my background, nothing. I only talked about the world, current affairs and life experiences because remember, I was going to comedy to escape my real life. I didn't want to talk about it. I was trying to not deal with it. And how did that shift occur to become the conscious comic? Charm, the universe, mother nature, it wouldn't let me not. Like, you know, you start just writing jokes and you're writing jokes and it's just started coming out of my spirit. I meditate, you know that, but I want your listeners to know. And it got to a point where who I am had to come out because I became serious about being a comic, a comedian. And once I decided, okay, I'm serious. I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to have a website. I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to do, I'm going to do more than open mics. Once I made the decision that this is not just open mics, I'm going to go grab a glass of wine or a beer every couple of weeks and just do three minutes. Then it became, well, I don't want to get up there lying. Hmm. That's disingenuous. And that's not who I am. I don't do anything else like that. So why would I do this? And I'm so passionate about 
the art form. And I know, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, you got politicians, preachers, professors, comedians. Who else can command an audience? You get the mic and like everybody's listening. What are you going to say, Jay? I've come of age as a comedian during a time you got Black Lives Matter. You got people grabbing women by the crotch. I'm like, I got to say something. And my point of view, I'm coming from the hotbed of, you know, civil rights and the cradle of the Confederacy. And then I have all this corporate experience. I've been to all seven continents. I've lived in three or four other nations. And so it started coming out in my jokes. But it was the pandemic. The pandemic made caregiving be a part of my comedy. I didn't have a choice. The same way I didn't have a choice to be a comedian, I didn't have a choice to keep caregiving out of my material in a very real way soon as COVID hit. I tried to fight mm-hmm. it. I ignored it. And the universe was like, all right, okay. Okay. I was like, ah, no, 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 I don't want to do it. <laughs> I lost. <laughs> but that's when you started your podcast too, right? During the pandemic. Correct. Parenting Up podcast where you sort of bring together all of the things you're passionate about, storytelling, comedy, your experiences in caregiving. Why do you think that was important? To do it? Yeah, to make your podcast about the caregiving adventures. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but like when I tell you I didn't have a choice about that follow the charm, you know, when you get to the corner, you're supposed to go left or right. What did intuition tell you to do? I started meditating in 2015. Mm-hmm. And... In December 2015 is when I started meditating. March 2015 is when I started comedy. I've been working very intently and intentionally on building my intuition muscle. And I didn't even want to do a podcast. Again, I don't have time to add anything. I'm barely stand above water with what I'm already responsible for or the things I at least have agreed to do. Because everything in this world is a choice. I could get up from this Mike right now and walk out on you and what you're going to do. And nothing you can do, right? Like everything's a choice. I could leave my mama today. What's she going to do? Nothing. Like you could just, whatever. Everything's a choice. But I already have so much in my plate. I was like, Jay, what do you mean? How are you going <laughs> to? But it wouldn't let me go. And it was very clear what continued to come to me during meditation in moments of quiet. We had been in lockdown probably less than six weeks, definitely not two months for sure. and. It was, you're going to do a podcast and you're talking to caregivers. Like the podcast, I was very clear. The mission was not to just deal with, oh, Jay Smiles, you got to figure out how to do comedy, right? Because a lot of comedians or a lot of artists or entertainers made a podcast about their craft because all of a sudden, if you can't perform, figure out how to take it to a digital medium. And it was clear, like, nope. Mm-mm. This has nothing to do with your standup. You are supposed to talk to caregivers. They are hurting. I was getting that from caregivers. People who know that I'm caregivers were DMing me. What are you doing? How are you taking care of your mom? How are you not going crazy? And I was like, ah, ah. You know, I'm Jonah. <laughs> That's what I tell all my friends all the time. I am so Jonah in the Bible. Like Jonah didn't want to do nothing. So whether you're Christian or not, just know it ain't but five pages in the Bible. Okay. Jonah didn't want to do nothing. He was always running from whatever he was supposed to do. And I'm Jonah. And I was like, it's the only five pages I know. I don't even know what nothing else is in the Bible. Whatever. That's not a point. So, and it came to me. It's like, you're supposed to talk to 
caregivers and you're supposed to tell your story and it's supposed to be funny. Don't try to get into statistics or pills and doctors and tests. Just tell your story. Talk to other caregivers. If you tell your story, it will help people. And everything I've ever done has to pass through that eye of the needle. In my 20s, I thought I wanted to make money more than I had a mission. By my early 30s, I knew that I wasn't driven by that. I'm just not, period. Like mission over money for me, period. Impact over income. That's just who I am. I show up better when the mission aligns with my values and who I am. And so helping caregivers during the pandemic, that was a reason at two o'clock in the morning after I get my mom to finally go to sleep to come to cut these damn lights on. I'm like, all right, hey, it's Jay Smile. Like, but if I was just kind of trying to come to figure out how to do a set in the dark with some lights to ask people to put 99 cent on my Patreon account, like I wouldn't have done that. I just wouldn't have. I wouldn't have had the consistency because I wouldn't have given a shit. I would have been like, I don't know. How many 99 cents do I need to buy some coffee? Like by the time the IRS, take, I'm like, but I'm on every continent and I have people who barely speak English sending me things like I legit was about to quit my mama until I heard season whatever episode whatever and if you can do it I can do it too I'm like bet let me go do my next episode like that is what leads me but I did not have a plan to become a podcaster I am following intuition and the spirit you're going to do a podcast and it is for caregivers and Jay Smiles is doing it it was also very clear my legal name, Janae Smith. She is not doing this podcast. It's never her perspective. It's always Jay Smiles. And I'm very clear. I get in the right head, mind, frame, whatever, before I do the recording. I don't think Janae or JG was what my mom calls me. I don't think she could be so transparent because mm. it was too painful. Like Jay Smiles is telling JG's story. It's like Jay Smiles is JG's best friend who happens to know everything. But JG would probably be crying every third word. Like, that's who I'm at. And it's hilarious. I've listened to a few of the episodes, the break-in, or at least y'all thought it was a break-in, and your mom is trying to go downstairs, and you're trying to keep her upstairs so you can go see who broke into the house. And you tell a story about your relationship with sleep and how it's evolved over the years. Can you just share a little bit of that, what you learned from the sleep doctor that you went to go see? Yeah, so it sucks. My relationship with sleep sucks. That's the awful short answer, and I'm admitting it in hopes of being helpful to others. I've always pushed through with sleep as in junior high, I don't think I got eight hours. Like I've, I've always been what in the United States, at least we would say an overachiever, a type personality. I want to do more. And then I want to get it all done. And when am I going to go to sleep? When my eyes close, they just, I'm going to do like this. I'm going to fall asleep and then I'm going to wake up and I'm going to keep it moving. My parents are pretty high driven, but my dad got eight or nine hours. My mom didn't. So I can't put it on my parents. I literally can do a lot with little sleep. 
but it's not good for you. Like it's sooner or later, your body is going to demand those receipts. And it is believed that a lack of sleep and sleep deprivation over a period of time is a factor or a variable that is involved with Alzheimer's. They don't know. No one knows what causes Alzheimer's. But there does seem to be agreement that sustained sleep deprivation doesn't help. And ultimately, what the sleep doctor told me was, okay, he's like, Jace Mouse, listen. Because of your career, (laughs) you're a podcaster and a comedian. While I have those other degrees and I lean on them in certain entrepreneurial pursuits, professionally, what I am leading with in this stage is I'm a comedian and a podcaster, but I'm also one of the people on my mom's caregiving team. Normally, if I'm on shift, it's at night which means I'm on shift from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. My mom never goes to bed before 3 or 4 a.m., ever. And when I say ever, I mean ever. And when I say go to bed, I mean get in the bed. That's not a sleep. (laughs) We're talking about sleep where you hear that good, (laughs) that good snort. Because with my mom, you got to hear the snort and the air after it before you can feel good about leaving her room. And then she's incontinent. So you got to make sure that she is clean and dry every so hours. I take great pride in the fact that my mom's been incontinent for at least five or six years. No skin breakdown. Okay, when she was in the hospital, but I, don't get me started on that because then I'm going to have to end up suing somebody. So none. <laughs> and that's a really, really, that's hard to do. I mean, I give that to my caregiving team And the fact that every two hours, we check it on her. This is not a game. So he told me, listen, he was like, listen, chick, you got to act like you are third shift at the plant. (laughs) If you are on night shift the next day, you got to go to bed. You got to get off shift with your mom, go get in your bed, cut out all the lights and close all the shades and sleep for eight hours. Here's a sleeping pill and go sleep. And I was like, what? Wait. But I got I got James Brown. I got the podcast. I got to pay these bills. I got to go play with somebody's son. At some point, I'm supposed to have a date. Like, <laughs> what, what are we doing? I got to get my hair done. My nails are supposed to go to the gym. He's like, yeah, no, not on the day after you've been on night shift. That was hard. That was even hard to accept. So I'm thinking, no, he, what does he know about that? Like, okay, 10, if I get off at 10, I can sleep. And I'm counting up. If I sleep, I can get up at 4 p.m. and do something. He was right. It took him telling me that he gave me a sleep study, a night sleep study and a daytime sleep study. Apparently, I am just below being a narcoleptic. He was like, listen, let me know what streets you're driving on during the day because I don't even want to be near you. (laughs) He said, do you fall asleep at traffic lights? I was like, yeah, you don't. He was like, no, that's not normal. (laughs) Really? I said, I think I kind of just. When the light turns green, I wake up. He was like, you're not supposed to fall asleep at a red light, Jay Smiles. And I was like, well, that dude, I'm feeling good if I don't fall asleep while the car is moving. I mean, I'm stopped. He was like, yeah, no, no, no. He said, if you are anywhere near sleepy during the day, I need you to take a ride share. You get a ride or have a driver or something. 
So I laugh now. I tell everybody on my team, my friends, I say, listen, everybody else is trying to win the lottery, get a new house, a plane or a car. I just need a driver. That's what I need. That's, <laughs> I want the lottery. I need that scratch off so I can have a driver 24-7. I do have a daytime sleepiness condition. I think I'm so deprived of sleep at this point, like I doubt I could ever catch up. But I also know there's nothing in my life that I want to cut out. I think I've pared down everything that I care to pare down. At this point, mm-hmm. if I started paring down anything else, my soul would feel a little cheated. Now, you know, mm-hmm. my health may start to tell me, look here, silly chick, you got to choose something. But I try to watch more now what I'm eating, what I'm drinking. I drink a lot less alcohol, a whole lot more water. And I now get six hours. My sleep doctor told me it was almost like we were bothering. I felt like I was around the corner with a mobster because he was like, listen, how many hours can you give me uninterrupted? Because I told him, I said, I get eight hours a day. He was like, in a row. And I was like, in a row? Who the hell sleeps eight hours in a row? He was like, people, Jay, people. I was like, oh, no. I was like, I get four two-hour naps. And he was like, I'm going to put you out. (laughs) Four two-hour naps. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's how I've been living. I was like, John F. Kennedy did it. He was like, and I was like, listen, but he was assassinated. That's not why he's not here. (laughs) What I promised him, and I'm doing pretty good, is to get six consecutive hours. And according to my little sleep thingy, I think I'm at like 545. I'm averaging 545 consecutive. I'm like, that's I'm winning. And just to wrap this up, talk about the importance of celebrating becoming a caregiver. And how did you come up with that? That is a result of my podcast. Mm -hmm. Talking to other caregivers, some of that information has come from actual episodes and interviews. A lot of it has been where individuals have contacted me saying, Jason, I just need your advice or I want to just break bread with you, but I don't want to be on an interview because I don't think... I'm not ready or my family members aren't ready to share our story. And Mm -hmm. it made me really sit down and recognize how dark that crown or that hat or that coat still is for family caregivers. And I wanted to pull apart the why. And I was like, man, and I haven't done a focus group, but from my small sample size, it appeared to me that there lingers this societal viewpoint that the person with dementia, whatever thing under the umbrella, I'm going to speak to Alzheimer's because that's what my mom has, has gone in air quotes crazy. And I'm supposed to keep my mom in the house because she's crazy and we're embarrassed, almost like it's 1920 and we're going to have a brain lobotomy or something because, oh, she lost her mind. And I don't know whoever decided even then that losing your mind is something that the other family members should be embarrassed about because why? You didn't do anything. So what if you lost your mind? I mean, that's my opinion now that I'm an adult. I know when I was a child, you're like, oh, so-and-so, oh, you know, they, whatever, her husband died and she lost her mind. Don't, don't go over there. Don't go in her yard because she'll yell at you. You heard these things around lost their mind. So what if someone has a nervous breakdown and their cognitive ability declines? What are we embarrassed for? First of all, it didn't happen to you. But 
more importantly, they didn't want it to happen to them. They didn't make a choice. I don't think anybody said, you know what, the way I want to respond to this thing that happened to me in life is I want to be able to take care of myself less. <laughs> I want to walk up <laughs> to a tree and bite the bark. That's what I want. I just want to walk in the middle of the street and take a crap. Yes. That's how I want to respond in life. Like, really? So what we're going to do is hide them in the basement? Like, what? What? Anyway, anyway, what I gathered was that many family caregivers themselves don't actually understand the disease. What's happening mm -hmm. to the disease? What's happening inside of their loved ones as the disease progresses? They don't really understand that their loved one doesn't have a choice and that they did not do anything wrong to get it. Now, if I could just, I want to bring in something that's a little bit sensitive, but I think it'll help put a bow on this thing. While lung cancer is not 100% tied to smoking, smoking cigarettes does greatly increase your chance of having lung cancer. That's been proven scientifically. Nothing has been proven scientifically to increase your chance of having Alzheimer's or, okay, intravenous drugs or sex is what would lead to HIV, which would later become AIDS. That's what science told us. I'm not a scientist. I'm just believing statistics. That's what they said. Again, nothing has been linked to what the hell gives you Alzheimer's. Why are you over here putting the red? Scarlet letter A on them like they did something. It's not like, oh, yeah, they murdered 12 innocent babies. That's why they got Alzheimer's. So let's hate them assholes. Really? So I decided as a part of my advocacy in the same way I was trying to figure out how can I answer the question? What do you do? How do I put caregiving in it? in my answer in a way that gets people to ask me more questions versus leave me for the cocktail shrimp. Because my goal as an advocate is to ultimately get to more legislation, more money, a cure, and people not to run off and be afraid of an Alzheimer's sufferer when they see them at the mall or at a ball game. So the idea of saying, okay, how do we change this conversation? Where it starts with the family caregivers. Doctors and nurses aren't going to do it because when they clock out, they off work. I wouldn't even ask them to do it. Why should they be an advocate when they are at Top Golf or in the movies with their family? That's their job. This is not my job. This is my life. And I want to change the world's view of Alzheimer's and dementia. So what can I do? I can help other caregivers not be. <sighs> Man, this is so hard and it sucks. And I'm a little bit mad and frustrated with my daddy for getting it. I'm just speaking as if I'm another caregiver. So the mm. frustration that you have with this loved one for having the disease, for having such temperament spikes. And I thought, okay, if I can get them maybe to see Number one, you are badass for accepting this responsibility. You didn't have to. You could put your family member in a home or you could give them to another family member, put them in a nursing home or facility, or you could just leave them in their own house and they could just be found dead in three weeks after they didn't feed themselves. That happens. 
So number one, celebrate the fact that you took the responsibility. Number two, it's not your fault or their fault that they have a disease. Like, just relax. Nobody did anything wrong. This period. It's not because they ate this or didn't eat this. We have no way of knowing. So just chill. Like the same reason why I don't know why I'm this skin complexion and this height. I just am. So just go with it. That was my rationale and my reason. Quite a few caregivers have received it very well. They're like, can we get a logo? (laughs) What's hilarious because you understand this. We both are Divine Nine members. They have asked me for a pledge. Like, can we get like a caregiver creed or a pledge? We could say, I I was like, you know what? I'm going to work on that. But the goal is to create a community where we almost like CG for life. I started putting that hashtag caregiver for life. Like what you want. I also tell people just because your LO has passed away, you're a caregiver for life. It's like you're a mom for life or a parent. Like if your child becomes an adult or they're deceased, that experience doesn't go anywhere because nobody else can understand this yet. If you went through it, you, you can still listen to this podcast. You can still listen to my podcast or come on. I've had many people come on where their LO is an angel now and they still want to share their story. And they have told me that it's been very cathartic because they're helping someone else down their journey. So I'm like, hey, Mm. celebrate it because what you're doing, you made a choice, you're doing it very well, and you're doing it better than a non-family member would. I just want to acknowledge you for stepping up and choosing that role. And I highly recommend everybody listening to your podcast, even if you're not a caregiver, because I I got so much out of listening to several episodes and you're just such a great storyteller. Very funny. But where can people find your comedy? Are you on YouTube? Do you do live shows in certain cities? And how else could we support you? Well, thank you so much for the compliments, for the support. It has been my great pleasure and honor to be here on your podcast with you. Most of my comedy right now is virtual, but I Mm -hmm. absolutely do live shows. My website is single letter J, J jsmousecomedy.com. It has a link to all of my social media. My J Comedy IG typically has more up-to-date content, I would say, like what I might have been doing or thinking that day. But until the virus is basically gone, I have made a personal decision to be extraordinarily vigilant and protective around small comedy venues. And so I'm working larger either conferences or auditoriums to make Mm -hmm. sure that my engagement stays safe for my mom. She did contract COVID once and I had to leave her in the hospital and what the nurses gave me back was not really my mom and it took me about eight weeks to get her back and I said okay all right universe if you <laughs> if you just give me my mama back one more time one more again I tell you what uh, that won't happen again because <laughs> I'm staying around shit. Ah, yes so the podcast 
Parenting Up Caregiving Adventures with comedian Jay Smiles is everywhere you podcast. The link is on the website. The website is literally the kind of the best place to get to to see all things me. I'm available for virtual, do a lot of virtual things for people, corporations, individuals, celebrities, parties, whatever, comedy keynotes. My passion is really curating comedy for others. So whether you are a group of surgeons or a group of caregivers, I will make my comedy fit into what your audience needs. And I, I take great pride in that versus shoving my can set into your audience's ears. <laughs> and what advice would you give to someone who's just starting off on this journey? Maybe they just saw some signs in their parent or whoever that they're going to be caring for when they're in that kind of holding pattern that you found yourself in, in the very beginning, what advice would you give to that person? First and foremost, to get medical intervention. I would start with the primary care physician, ask for an MRI, ask for a MRI of the brain. And if they don't want to give you one, go to another physician. It is critical that you get an MRI snapshot right now. So much so, I actually say this very often when I'm dealing with individuals who have aging parents, that maybe if you can, once your family members that you, whoever that you engage with or close to, once they get 60, 65, 60, anything, just get an MRI because it's the changes of the MRI that will let a neurologist know if something dementia-related is likely occurring. Often what happens is they don't have a baseline. So you say, hey, you know, mom or dad, something's odd is going on. And then you take them to a doctor and they're like, well, when did you start seeing this? And what did you start seeing? And when did it happen? Well, unless you've been living with your parents and really watching them for the last seven years, you're probably only commenting on one or two things you saw over the holidays, and you don't really have a good baseline, which is why I suggest just having them get an MRI, let's say, as soon as they hit 62 or 65, something like that. And just even if they don't have any problems, it's just like a, a brain checkup. But if they've already started to have problems, then a couple of things, first to get their primary care physician involved, get your own name added if it's not already done, if you haven't already done so, get your own name added as a person who can speak with their primary care physician without your parents being involved. You want to get that brain scan. You also want to have a neurological assessment. Primary care physicians will tell you, oh, I could just do it here in office. Do not fall for that. If, in fact, you think there's some decline already, get a neurologist. Ask them, hey, yeah, do whatever song and dance you need to get that referral to a neurologist and just say, hey, just want to get a workup. Hey, can you just, there's a lot going on, whatever. I just want to get a workup. I want to get a workup for mom and dad and then take it, take it from there. Those are the two things to do. In the medical community, I also want to say have a will. There's so many people who don't have a will that it hurts my feelings. Make sure your parents have a will. 
and you know where the hell it is, you have your own copy or you, you can go put your hand on it very quickly. A will, an advanced directive, which is the same as a living will, which is, says that this person is still legally alive, but they're not able to make decisions medically. You want that. Then you want a power of attorney. Those three legal documents need to be done like as soon as you get through listening to this podcast. If you don't have all three of those or any senior that you think you may ever have to assist in their care, go get it immediately. Even if you own legal zoom or something like that, it doesn't have to be long and complicated. What you don't want is to be scrambling where you're just trying to pay their cell phone bill or go to the bank and get out a hundred dollars and you can't because you just don't have this stupid little form that everybody knows your daddy would have let you do. But you're like, they're like, yeah, we're so sorry. Mr. Light, we know your dad would have let you. We remember when you used to come in here with him, but you don't have a form. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for that sage advice. And definitely everybody listening to this, check out Jay Smiles, her comedy, and absolutely check out her podcast. And I look forward to seeing you again. We just caught up a month ago in Atlanta. So that was awesome seeing you. I've seen you perform. You've been on some meditation retreats of mine. So we go pretty deep here and you are definitely the real deal. And you're one of the funniest comedians. I'm a big fan of comedy, as you know, you're one of the funniest comedians that I've witnessed. So thanks again for coming on and being so vulnerable and transparent and sharing your story. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. That's huge. I take that as a big, big, big compliment. And mm-hmm. there's a lot to me. Thank you so much. I'm excited. I'm excited about the future doing more virtual hybrid comedy too. So look forward to that for you and your listeners to be, I want to really merge how we can exist Mm -hmm. in this virtual Mm -hmm. hybrid live, working on some real special stuff with some talented individuals. But I remember us getting together in Atlanta and it it sparks some extra things. Mm -hmm. And thank you for this podcast and the way you lead us so fiercely with your digital post and helping us to think through what I would like to say is to think through how to lean into the universe when there's so much distraction externally. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into my interview with Jay smiles. Make sure to follow Jay on social media at Jay smiles comedy. And I also highly recommend checking out her podcast, which is called parenting up again. If you're not a caregiver, you're still going to, find her stories hilarious and appreciate her love for her mother. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com. And while you're there, you can search my past podcast episodes by subject matter. So if you want to see more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges, you can get a list of all of those specific episodes at lightwatkins.com. Oh, and by the way, did you know that you can watch these podcast interviews on YouTube? Because I know for me, sometimes it's nice to put a face or a voice to a story. So just keep that in mind in case you're the same. I post every podcast episode on my YouTube channel, which you can find by just searching Light Watkins Podcast. And I also post the raw, unedited version of every podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type of person that likes hearing all of the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode, you can listen to all of that 
by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to the unedited versions of the podcasts, but you also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, my seven-day meditation kickstart. There's also a 108-day movement challenge and other challenges and masterclasses as well. And if you're feeling inspired by these stories to make sure that this podcast continues to stick around and spreads, the best way to show support for that mission is to leave a rating or review for the podcast, which you can do very quickly. It'll only take you 10 seconds. Just glance down at your phone on the Apple Podcast app. Go to the name of this podcast. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see the five blank stars. Just tap the star on the far right and you've left me a five-star rating. That really does help in the algorithm to keep this podcast near the top of the search results when people are looking for something inspirational to listen to. So thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like you and me taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.